0: It's a little bit of side note, but I don't know if you've seen a documentary called My Octopus Teacher. It's absolutely brilliant. It's about a gentleman in South Africa who every single day went diving in the kelp forests off the coast of Cape Town area, and he made friends, for want of a better word, with an octopus who. He would learned about how octopus live and society, and that's an adaption right there, and there's no reason why giraffe that live close to people behave differently to those that live in a fenced area compared to those who live in a very large, open environment. So every environment is different, and of course, animals uh, behave differently, and that's the exciting part of it, and that's rightly, as you say, how they evolve and adapt.
1: Welcome to another episode of Animalia. Where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. So I thought it would be good to kind of start the conversation just talking about the state of things for a giraffe. I think they're a beloved, a beloved species for a lot of us here in the U.S., but not necessarily a species I think people are very familiar with or think of as threatened in any way. They don't. They don't get some of that sort of. Uh, Poaching notoriety of elephants and rhinos, or lions, and and they're not as kind of woven into culture. I think probably in the U.S., a lot of people, at least from my generation, think of giraffe as the the, to- the Toys R Us logo. <laughs> I think it's Joffrey, Jeffrey, or Jeffrey, Jeff- Jeffrey the giraffe, Jeffrey the giraffe, Joffrey is the horrible Game of Thrones <laughs> <laughs> child. But but yeah, so just the you know, kind of table set for everybody. What, what is the, the state of play for giraffe today? What What is there? What are some of the, the threats that they're up against? We'll talk more in a second about why, why you decided to dedicate your lives to the species. But what, what do you want people to know about giraffe that they probably don't know?
2: I mean, we always say everyone loves giraffe. I'm yet to meet a person who says I don't like giraffe. They're they're one of the most iconic animals in in Africa, certainly, but probably the world. Everyone knows their shape. They're used really widely in advertising, kids' clothes. You just said Jeffrey the giraffe, Toys R Us. Yeah, they're really iconic and, and, and popular. But at the same time, most people haven't realized that they're in real trouble. There is now less than a hundred and ten hundred and eleven thousand giraffes remaining in all of Africa, that is uh, one giraffe for every four elephant, so the numbers have been dropping quite drastically over the last thirty but also more than hundreds of years, and no one has really paid attention so we we have we keep on calling it the silent extinction because uh, not only do giraffe make not so many noises, but no one seems to be making a noise about them either. So um, threats are are really varied and and giraffe occur in over 20 African countries and each country is different, threats are different, but the main threat to, to giraffe is habitat loss, habitat destruction. There's just more and more people and less and less space for these quite large animals that need wide ranges.
1: What what do you think it is about giraffe that that, that make them this at on the one hand this iconic beloved species? Is it just their perceived sort of gentle nature, or just curious on what you think it kind of drives that? But at the same time, also what do you think it is about giraffe that have prevented people from recognizing the the state of play they're in, and 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 why do you think? many people don't think of giraffe when they think of threatened species in Africa?
2: I think, first of all, they're, they're not a controversial species. So there's not much conflict. They're not poached for any body part. So you don't really hear much about it. There's no big crisis where you have quite shocking pictures it's more that their numbers has slowly dropped and no one has really realized. And in most African parks that, that tourists would go, for example, there is quite a few giraffes. So they are often seen when you when you come on safari. So it's not that people come to Africa and don't see giraffe. So I think this is what really contributes to to the issue. And because I don't know, I, I wouldn't say they are not charismatic, but they're just not like Predators people really identify with, and then it's exciting. Elephants have strong family bonds, so you you really can identify with that and giraffe are a bit more boring <laughs> they're like a big antelope they you don't see a lot of anthropomorphic behavior there, so people just take them for granted. We always say most people when they come to Africa, they won't have giraffe on their tick list necessarily. But if they go home and they haven't seen a giraffe, they certainly don't feel like they have been to Africa.
1: Mm, That's interesting. They do live, I believe a a group of giraffes called a tower, correct?
2: I I let my Australian husband respond to that. I'm German, so what do I know?
1: (laughs) No,
0: but as for the collective noun for giraffe, a lot of people call it a, a tower when they're standing still, if they're walking they call them a journey of giraffe from a scientific term we call them a herd some call them a group but i suppose the most important thing is that we can call them what we want but let's try and get that awareness and education out there of what's going on
1: what is so within a herd of giraffe um, is there what are some of the behaviors of the the you know kind of connection within a herd like we mentioned but it's very documented with with elephants and and i believe that like I, I recently read, there's there was a sighting, in, I forget what year it was, it was in the last decade, the first time someone observed what looked like a, a hippopotamus potentially sort of grieving mourning over a young dead hippo. And it was the first time that was kind of observed scientifically. What is life like within a herd of giraffe? I, From what I see, the giraffe parents are still protected over the calves and calves are very threatened, right? Like, cal- like uh, the survival rate of calves is... Pretty low because they they are very like you know, predators, lions, spotted hyena, leopards like they do go after giraffe calves from what I understand but what 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 is this kind of social dynamic of a, of a giraffe herd
0: so giraffe live in what we call a fission fusion society that means they don't have permanent herd structure like an elephant, lion, gorilla, so you don't see mum, dad, kid, and all the other siblings all together what you see is a really strong bond between the mother and the calf and that can be male or female and those strong bonds last for many years in particular females calves they last much longer than males who sort of get booted out to go and fend for themselves after a couple of years with the mum and then so those bonds you'll see throughout different populations varies we assume A lot of things over the years because someone studied giraffe in one population in one part of Africa. But what we're seeing now is that giraffe are different in different populations. There's four different types of giraffe. So why wouldn't it be different that they have different social structures in different areas? So the more we find out, the more we understand about giraffe and the more we can manage them. Interestingly, if you look at those bonds in some areas of northwest Namibia, we see family groups for want of a better word, spend more time together, what we assume to be a family group. But we don't know. No one has ever studied the genetics of a family of giraffe anywhere in Africa. So what we see is just assumptions. But we see small groups hang out together much more in some areas. In other areas, you see large groups of males who hang out in big bachelor herds together. So it's horses for courses, and it depends on the area, how the giraffe... With regards to predators... Giraffe definitely its number one predator, aside from humans, lion, and they can take out large numbers of calves in their first year. It's been recorded by some people that about 50% of giraffe don't survive the first year. But other places we see, northwest Namibia, we see almost 75% of calves survive the first year. So again, the more and more we're finding out, the more we can really understand about how giraffe react, interact, and how they behave. And this is really important to obviously advise on their future management.
1: Because the adult giraffe protect themselves against a lion through 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 kicking? Is that is that is that is that true? Predominantly,
2: yeah, they do, and and they're just through the sheer size as well. It's difficult for a single lion to take down a giraffe. However, again. We do a long-term study here in, in Northwest Namibia, so we are referring to that a lot. And there used to be a, a group of young male giraffe, young male lion, the the five musketeers, and they had learned from their mum and their grandmother actually to specialize on giraffe. And together, those five guys could easily take down a fully grown giraffe just by chasing it into some quite precarious and and uneven um, terrain, and the giraffe would slip or they would jump on it from the banks of a, of a dry riverbed. So it, it does happen. But as Julian just said, every place is different. And just a, a, a funny little side story. Just last weekend, I don't know, you might have read about our recent report of two dwarf giraffes. We, our researchers saw a, or reported on, on a dwarf giraffe in Uganda and one here in Namibia. And we went on the weekend just to, to check on Nigel is his name, because the farmer, where he lives was, was a bit concerned and he said he saw him by himself a lot. So he was worried about his mental health. And so we went and we checked on him and we found him as part of a larger group. And there was definitely a, a feeling that, that the other giraffes were, were looking after him when we got a bit closer and he got a little bit stressed. So we, we fell back again. But there was one male adult male giraffe that, that came back and it really felt like he was checking on him. It's just a, an observation. There's no scientific base to that, but it's quite contrary to what most people believe about giraffes. So, as Julian said before, the, the more we learn, the more we understand, and there's just so
1: little known. It sounds like, from what you're telling me, that giraffes are sort of very individualistic animals. But as any individual, that means some the social dynamics are different for different different individuals. Some like humans, like some sort of thrive on herd dynamics and social dynamics, some thrive on independence and space. And it, that's, that's what I'm hearing from you as I'm like, let's say elephants, which are all sort of conditioned to to sort of be tribal by nature. And I mean, humans are that way too. Gorillas are that way. It sounds like giraffes are very individualistic, but that means that there are going to be individuals that will potentially like thrive on, on social dynamics and some that don't. And that's why, like, it just sort of is is going to always have a range to it, because because of how giraffes are kind of wired that way. Is that do you think that is that fair to to say, or, is there, or am I drawing too much out of what what you're saying?
0: No, I think it's been quite interesting lately reading some studies about giraffe across different populations about how their social structure are. Many people have tried to get that close affinity with with humans or elephants that giraffe live in these strong bonded groups, but it's all relative you find in these small populations that some giraffes do like to hang out together more, but it could be every other day that you actually don't see them together, and then in other populations, there's definitely lonesome individuals, predominantly males, but you see females hang out by themselves and and a couple of days later they could be in a, a herd of a hundred individuals. so each giraffe is definitely individual, and they see that in the zoo community all the time with giraffe that uh, have different personalities. So I think it's critical that you never judge a book by its cover. A lot of people say to us, well, how clever is a giraffe? And it's, again, anthropomorphise how we think about giraffe. But I like to think about it. Well, they've been around for 2 million years. We've been around about three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand 400,000 years. So give us a few more years and see if we're still around.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also species do adapt right, over time. I think the one that comes to mind is the octopus, which has always been very, very individualistic for as long as we've been studying them. And in, only in the last 10, 20 years have scientists observed octopus actually starting to move and, and stay in, in I don't know what a, a group of octopuses called because it's still a new phenomenon, But but in groups, small groups. And they're likely, they believe in the region that's happening, like it is tied to some, you know, kind of evolution of, of survival that the, like there is some strength they're seeing in numbers and knowledge being passed on and things like that. So like humans, species also evolve and are always evolving for survival. And there's always the chance that perhaps looking forward 50, 100, 200 years, Giraffe do have more, have different social dynamics for the same evolutionary reasons. Other species evolve as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then just the more we, we can learn about them. And uh, as Julian said, our research has shown that there's four different species of giraffe. Why would we assume that they all behave the same way?
0: I think what's really quite cool, I don't know if it's, it's a little bit of side note, but I don't know if you've seen a documentary called My Octopus Teacher. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. It's about a a gentleman in South Africa who every single day went diving in the kelp forests off the coast of Cape Town area. And uh, he made friends, for want of a better word, with an octopus who he learned about how octopus live and society. And that's an adaption right there. And there's no reason why giraffe that live close to people behave differently to those that live in a fenced area compared to those who live in a very large, open environment. So every environment is different. And of course, animals uh, behave differently. And that's the exciting part of it. And that's rightly, as you say, how they evolve and adapt.
1: Well, let's transition to, to you both and sort of how Giraffe Conservation Foundation came to be. Let's go maybe back to the beginning and yeah, just tell us how you, how, how you got involved and why draft in the first place and how and why you you formed GCF.
0: I would normally tell you my story but Steph actually likes to tell the story from her side so <laughs> it's probably better that she talks.
2: <laughs> it's actually it's, it's very simple we I'm obviously German Julian is an Aussie we met here in Namibia at at work, really <laughs> boring. We both worked in a, in a project in northwestern Namibia where we tried to understand a catchment area of, of, of a river, I think you call it watershed, a watershed, just to understand the interaction between humans and wildlife and domestic stock. And in that area, there was a desert dwelling population of giraffe and also elephant And Julian wanted to do some additional studies, so he started focusing initially on on elephant and giraffe. But when he started doing more literature review and research, he realized very quickly that there was very little information available on giraffes, so that there was a real gap. So he focused his PhD and we developed his methodology together, spent a lot of time together in the field um, doing research over several years in the very remote part of of northwestern Namibia yeah and that's how it slowly started so I like to say I married into it basically and then yeah just really realized that as as we tried to or as we started to learn more about giraffe not only was there very little information available but there was also the numbers had been dropping quite drastically all across Africa and no one was really paying attention so we just really saw a need to to do something about it and to try and draw attention to giraffe
0: and i think what's quite fascinating is a lot of people have asked us this question before and i know Steph and i we haven't been giraffe fanatics since we were kids Steph's an environmental engineer i wanted to be a stockbroker for years and make some good money we sort of fell into it and as she said found a niche but importantly we realized that there was this gap and we we committed and we we risked a lot personally and a lot of people don't realize that if you take such chances i mean we had no salaries no nothing we had to raise everything ourselves there'd never been any full time giraffe people before ever apart from doing a masters or a phd program and so with two kids chomping at our heels and they like to eat and They like to have some new clothes and toys sometimes and, of course, education. We realised that after a while we were fortunate enough to be in a position to, to give it a go and we decided that we set up the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, which was just over 10 years ago and initially in the UK but now moved to Namibia and we have a base throughout the US, that's one of our big bases, but we also have registration in a number of other East African countries, as well as in Germany. So to run a small NGO, you actually need to know a hell of a lot. So we're quite fortunate for many years, we've worked in all different organizations, everything from the UN through to local government, consultancies, NGOs, and we've been able to get the experience we feel to run the Giraffe Conservation Foundation as it is today.
1: Awesome. What, what was your, what drew you to, to giraffe? Like, well, what, what, and this might be a little different for you both. Like what drew you to the species and what was that love story like?
0: I'll be honest that uh, giraffe in honesty was, uh, it was a business deal in the sense that (laughs) there was hardly any information about giraffe. So therefore, if more I looked at it, more, I realized that I can't be wrong. When I, I started this master's, which ended up with a PhD, and publishing the information was really just new to everyone out there and building on the little amount of work that was there previously and then from there it just snowballed and it was fantastic that you realized what you had been involved with was actually making a little bit of a difference and and we're here today but Steph I don't know what do you think from your side
2: yeah it's I mean I really like and and still love seeing giraffe in the wild every time I see them it's I love it and I can't it's not that I get bored of it or anything but it wasn't that I came to Africa and set out to do species conservation it was yeah it it, it was a process we just really saw that there was a that there was a need and and no one was doing anything so we started um, getting more and more involved and, and I think the the passion for a giraffe grew with the excitement of of making a difference i don 't think well, I think there's not too many people in the world who who really can say that they're making a difference and we don 't say it very often, but sometimes you sit back and you think, hmm, actually, w- we do make a difference
1: well is there a particular early moment in the field observing giraffe that stand out to you? is there You know, something, you know, witnessed or was it one of the first translocation operations or anything you want to share that kind of stands out as something you look back on as that, that was a pivotal moment and, and, and you you sort of felt a stronger bond to this, to this animal.
2: I mean, here in Namibia, in especially in the northwest where we started, giraffe live in a really, really harsh environment. It's hardly any rain, less than 100 a, a mils every year. They walk along dry riverbeds with massive trees. But you really look at the environment and you look at the giraffe in there and you think, why would you live here? So that is really the fascination that you just couldn't stop asking that question why? It's it's a really, really harsh life and the landscapes are humongous and beautiful. So it's it's a really it's a landscape that touches you and seeing a giraffe in there is certainly really special. But in all honesty, nothing beats the feeling of releasing giraffe after a translocation. There's just so much stress and hard work, I mean, it's often years of planning and fundraising and getting all the people at the right time to the right place, then the capture, it's all high risk, risk to animals and, and humans who are involved. And it's a really stressful thing to, to plan and implement a, a translocation at the moment when these giraffes run off the truck and are safe and put their first footsteps in a new environment nothing can beat that feeling
1: well that's a great great segue into uh, talking about these translocations uh, and I'd, I'd really love to just hear you both kind of break it down from kind of the beginning to that that euphoric moment at the end where they're released and yeah it, it is awesome the videos you have online of just seeing the giraffe race out of the pens and sort of run w- with that freedom again is, is, is a one is a wonderful joy to watch I feel like you could just make like a form of of, of mental health. Therapy by just having uh, a looping series of giraffe released from there their, their, those pens and, and just uh, it could just bring constant joy to people.
2: The <laughs> fundraising opportunity I'll, <laughs> I'll try to capitalize on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Help us understand at first like what is the reason translocations are necessary and what is kind of driving the need for those and then how do you make the decision of where to relocate a giraffe to? So giraffe translocation,
0: yeah, as you've indicated, James, is is more than just uh, a little bit of fun getting a few people together, cap some giraffe, drop them off and we all live happily ever after. Often what starts the whole process is understanding where giraffe have gone missing on the continent. Unfortunately, human population growth, which has led to habitat loss, there could be poaching, there could be a a whole host of things that have led to giraffe being locally extirpated in an area. And so we often go in working with the governments to develop a national strategy or a plan. And in that process, we're looking at areas where giraffe used to live and assessing are those viable areas to go back. So countries like Uganda, where we've worked very closely with the government, We figured out that after the years of war that went on there, the area is now safe. But unfortunately, they didn't have the capacity or the skills to be able to bring those giraffe back or other animals back to those areas. So by partnering, bringing in our skills, we went out and we looked at areas with the government. Is this an area that used to have giraffe? Is it safe? Is it secure? Whether that's from people, whether that's from other wildlife and all in all there's a what we call a translocation pre-assessment and it involves a whole host of things from the ecological economic and social side to be able to figure out what's going on and if we all understand and it looks really positive that's when together with the government we make the decision to say yes let's go and for sorry let's go forward with this translocation but then it requires a little bit of dollars And so we as the GCF, one of our key roles in this is not just the technical side, but is able to raise the funding and the support for it. Most of these African governments, their priority is not giraffe. Their priority is local people, their welfare, their education, their health. And that makes most sense. Our role as GCF is to conserve giraffe. So we bring those skills, capacity, resources, and when it comes to the, the final day when we actually start the translocation, it could be a year or two or more that have gone into the whole development of this translocation activity. But definitely by that stage, everyone's on the same team. We've got key partners that are pulling in all directions to be able to focus on the activity for that week or two or three that we're doing it in the field.
1: How many translocation operations have, has GCF been a part of? Five in Uganda,
0: more than ten.
2: Yeah, Nigeria, Namibia, Malawi, South Africa. So it's important to understand that in in Southern Africa, wildlife is a there's a wildlife industry. So giraffe and other wildlife are moved quite regularly. There's professional outfits who who specialize on moving animals. However, in in other parts of Africa, like in Eastern Africa, in Nigeria, in in West Africa, this expertise doesn't exist. So they have never moved animals themselves. So you really start with a clean slate. But what we do, we don't only raise the funding to buy all the equipment. You need trucks, you need trailers, you need ropes, you need drugs, you need veterinarians, but you also need, need a capture team. So we come with experienced people who then help to train local nationals in Uganda, in Niger, to actually be involved in the the first translocation and then over time to be able to do these translocations themselves. So in Uganda, we have now supported five translocations so far. And Uganda now has one of the most experienced capture teams in East Africa, Different. Certainly, but their draft capture expertise is, is actually really high. So they will be at the same level as, as some of the guys in Southern Africa, for
1: sure. Looking back at the, the different, those different translocation operations, which one stands out as the one that you were like, let's say the most concerned about going in or had had the highest rate of risk or challenges going into it? There's
0: always risk when you're doing a translocation one of the first ones, when you're moving giraffe across the Nile River, that that place is pretty big. That Nile River, is, we've all heard of it as a kid, and you've got to stick these giraffe on a truck, on a boat, and ferry them across a river. That's a pretty scary moment right there. So that was always tense, but it, it has to be for me in Niger, where the translocation we undertook was the first ever of any animal the government had ever done. So it took us so long to be able to bring all of the pieces together and to train the team, but it is exceptionally rewarding when you're standing next to one of your mates that you're working with and who might be from the local village or it could be from in the town and and together you've been able to do something that no one else has been able to do before, and we've been able to bring Giraffe in that instance back to a place called Gadabaji Biosphere Reserve after 25-odd years. And the local community has the biggest smile on their face. I mean, it is absolutely amazing feeling.
1: Uh, It just, it looks, the joy at the end of these translocations looks like it's hard to describe for the giraffes. I can't imagine what it's like for you both. Has, Has anything gone wrong in these operations?
2: Everything that can go wrong will go wrong at some stage. We had trucks break down. We had pieces of the trailer fall off. We, people broke arms. I mean, it's it's crazy. And, and we have learned over time that anything that can go wrong will go wrong at some stage. But if you have a good team and, and everyone is committed, you'll get through it and you, you make it happen in the end. And it's a challenge. It's, as I said before, it's super stressful. And that's why also this, this moment when the giraffe run off the truck, it's so rewarding because, that's the moment when for the first time in weeks all the stress releases and you've done it. And it's it has been good.
0: And I, I think we all need a little bit of luck, but sometimes you make your luck and that's great. And but there, nothing beats experience. And the more we do it and the more we work with different partners and can bring our team together across the continent, those challenges become or what they seem to become is less. The stress levels reduce to a certain degree when you've done something for the fifth time uh, or the 10th time or the 20th time. But you're always working with new partners. There's challenges with language, culture, all of these things. I mean, Steph and I are an Australian and a German, and we have huge cultural variances. But then we go and work in different African cultures. And just within own countries, there's huge differences between the people that we're working with. So every day is a new challenge and you've got to sit back sometimes. You've got to breathe in deeply and to make a plan and you've got to be really quick to think on your feet and have the skills and the capacity to work with local people and really get everyone on the one team and move in the same direction.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's really important that you just communicate and, and and just make it very clear that we are all passionate and we all want the f- same thing and in a stressful situ- situation sometimes someone starts shouting and words are said or people are pushed out of the way because you feel right now that is the the, the best thing for the safety of that person or for the animal and so it's important afterwards to debrief and just chat about it what happened because it is a highly highly stressful situation and there's a lot of stake that it's, it's really it's it's a danger to to giraffe life but also to human lives so it's it's really important to yeah to understand that and uh, and that everyone is on the same page and sometimes afterwards you you have a good laugh and you talk about things and say look sorry if i shouted in that situation but this is why and and everyone understands but yeah it's it's really stressful
1: it's okay for me asking is have you ever lost a giraffe in the translocation process
0: no, it's a funny word, lost. I always laugh about that. No, no, no. I didn't know
1: how to phrase that, sorry. It's always
0: funny. It's like, because everyone says the same thing, especially Americans, you know, because I love the PC nature. It's like, no, we've never lost one. We've always found them, don't worry. No, but unfortunately, the, the odd animal has died and we're honest and open about that. But it's normally in a situation where it's been highly stressful. Often, well, because it hasn't happened often at all, but when it has happened, it's normally the first giraffe that we've captured. And giraffe, whilst they discussed before, they live in, don't live in these strong social bonds, they actually like each other's company. So we just assume sometimes when you put the giraffe in by themselves for the first time and you leave it for too long, it, it causes them far too much stress. And so we've learned definitely over the last couple of years that those first couple of giraffe we capture really quickly we bring them together and we haven't had any of those losses since.
1: Yeah. I and mean, it's just, you yeah, know, th- this is part of the process of, of conserving wild animals and wildlife. Like they're like, yeah, they're, like this is innovation and, and, and creating solutions like anything comes with, with those, those, those moments where you, you kind of get something wrong or something goes wrong along the way but that's that's part of trying to 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 do good and trying to make a difference like if put it this way if if we if we refuse to do anything that didn't involve stumbling at some point or get any chance of getting something wrong at some point then we would do nothing right by by logic so i don't think there's anything wrong wrong with with owning that at all
2: no i i fully agree and and be assured that it's devastating for the entire team. I mean, we have, it's, it's really, really devastating and everyone, yeah, it's its beyond worse. It's, it's very, very sad, but then you pick yourself up and you just have to believe that you do the right thing. And uh, our son came home from school the other day and he said his teacher told him that in life you often stumble, but mostly we stumble forward. And I really like that.
1: It seems like you typically do... One to the four giraffe at a time, just given the the size of giraffe, is what's the biggest translocation uh, project you've done? I
2: mean, it, it depends entirely on the size of the truck, how many you can fit in and safely, and it depends that then also depends on the distance you' are traveling, because, as you can imagine, if there's too many giraffe in the truck and they have long legs and if they start get to, if they are stressed in a situation, they might kick, they can stumble. so in Uganda, we have a relatively small truck, so we normally fit about four giraffes, up to five into the truck at at any one time for the long-distance translocation. But here in Namibia, we are working with a partner who has a massive truck, and there we had 15, I think, the last of the maximum number we can fit into that one. So it really depends on the equipment you have.
0: Yeah, and with sort of newer captures and... Especially in East Africa or West Africa, we obviously don't want to take the risk and put large amounts of giraffe into the, the one truck. So the all the eggs in one basket scenario. So we take them in small groups and make sure that they're all safe and sound and prefer to take a little bit longer. With the move that we did in Niger, the first group of four that we moved, it took almost on the dot 48 hours and it's really long time to be able to have giraffe in a truck, but especially for people as well. You're driving, you're resting for a little bits, you're feeding them fresh brows that you're cutting. You're constantly on the move. So you want to minimize those risks. And if your equipment is uh, up for it, then you obviously do the best you can. But uh, you have to also mostly think about the team that you're working with.
1: So I want to talk next about kind of like how how GCF and how you both navigate the the ins and outs of, of kind of the politics of wildlife conservation. And I always find this to be an interesting topic. Uh, I've talked about it with many of my guests in the past that, that that are in the field, such as you, and everyone deals with it in a different way. And uh, I think the first one that stands out to me, and Stephanie and I had this, this discussion a couple of weeks ago, kind of briefly, is... This notion of the the big five in Africa and 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 how we kind of look for for someone who is not on the ground, right? But but interested in the space, it kind of creates this perception that those five species are really the ones in trouble, and everything else is kind of okay or like not as in not as in trouble. And that's where we we kind of focus. We should focus on. It seems like where a lot of it and as a result, a lot of attention and resources get to. For context for the listeners, the big five, I believe, are are elephant, rhino, lion, buffalo, and what's the fifth one I'm missing? Leopard. Yeah. And I, I just just starting there. What are your thoughts on the 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 kind of the, the big five and how that came to be and and the role it kind of plays in directing resources, especially like folks that are not on the ground and think and and sort of are drawn. Oh, I guess I should point my donations and my resources towards the big five because that's that seems like what where all the problems are. And then the species to me, like giraffe, kinda of get left out of that. Obviously the most trafficked animal in the world outside of human beings is the pangolin, which is shockingly not in the big five, if you are really talking about trafficking concerns. But yeah, just what are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, what most people don't know is what where the Big Five actually comes from. And then the fir- term Big Five, it's actually the five most dangerous animals to hunt in Africa. That's where the term was coined many, many years ago. So it's the, the black rhino, it's the elephant, buffalo, leopard and lion. So that were actually a threat to hunters. So it has nothing to do with their conservation status. It has nothing to do with how many they are and if they are in trouble. But it's it's obviously for tourists, it's a bit a big attraction. A lot of people want to see the big fives and, and national parks advertise that you can see the big five there. But most people don't really know the significance of it. So yeah, but when you ask about politics, otherwise we we currently work in sixteen African countries. So I don't know if you work a lot with your government or if you have ever worked with the African government. So multiply that by sixteen. So we pretty much have our work cut out when it comes to that. And we we also we work with a lot of partners with international and national NGOs, with universities, individual researchers. And so we are real partnership organization we don't uh, we have a small staff and working with partners is really at the at the core of our conservation approach which uh, can be really really rewarding and it can be really really challenging
1: i don't know of any other organizations that work with that many different countries and governments uh, outside of like the giant ngos of course but they're the billion dollar fund ngos i've personally dealt with a little bit with the lao government in some of my elephant work, and just that alone has been frustrating beyond description. And the the disorganization is just is just unprecedented out there. So I, I can't I can only imagine what it's like working with sixteen governments simultaneously, and how you keep your sanity.
0: We we often say there is no pill for stupidity, and the reality is 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 why we choose to work with you know the government level as a priority is because long term. Once you have government buy-in and endorsement, then the rest shall flow. Because if you start a little project in a country, it may just end up being a little project in a little area. But the government obviously needs that buy-in to realise that what's the status of giraffe? It it may not be the most threatened large mammal in the world, and we recognise that. However, we do think its status, especially some of the species, highly threatened. Some of them are critically endangered. And what we can do is we actually can make a difference now before it's too late. Many of the species that like black rhino numbers have plummeted and there's a huge amount of programs out there, funding, attention, etc. and I'm sure many of it is worthwhile. However, we feel for giraffe, we're already seeing increases in numbers by coming in at this stage and working with governments and partners to make a difference before it gets down to those low numbers. So what we think of... Other organisations and others who work on different species, we, we have our battles and it's always a bit of fun and good banter about why they get more funding than we do or not. But at the end of the day, we realise that what is it about output? It's what do we do to make a difference? And we feel that for the resources that we get at the moment, we are probably having one of the biggest impact per species from the everyone's dollar that they support
1: us with. What about in terms of some of the other governing bodies of sort of conservation work sites and ICUN come come to mind that I sort of mentioned our agenda. They seem to have a heavy influence on some of the rules and regulations of things, although they seem to be very complex, especially sites organizations with a lot of questionable influence over the years. Um, and it's hard to tell who they're optimizing for sometimes, and then obviously even harder to enforce some of these things across the different countries, even if they agree to be part of it. And then there's of course many countries that are not part of these organizations. So what's what's that world like, and how how do you or do you at all interface? With with those two or anyone similar, and if so in, in what in what regard?
0: So there's a lot of international treaties and conventions out there as well as large what we call bingos, big international NGOs, which obviously hold a lot of the space for conservation work, whether it be an IUCN, a WWF, a Conservation International, etc. And all have a role to play, we feel, in different areas, but specifically with giraffe. There's been a lot of promotion in the last couple of years of giraffe added to CITES, the Convention of Endangered or International Trade of Endangered Species, sorry. And, and CITES giraffe have been added, added as Appendix 2 to try and minimise the trade around the threats to giraffe. We literally are just publishing a paper as we speak that highlights that uh, trophy hunting is not the biggest threat to giraffe and by far from it. And so these large international NGOs, as well as some of those treaties, may not quite be hitting the mark for giraffe that they play a role for other species. Every species is different. Every treaty is different and convention. And what we need to do is spend more time um, on each of them and understand the science behind them to be able to guide their management. So it's a really delicate situation. There's a lot of people who believe 100% in these large organizations and conventions. We think they're a valuable tool if they're used properly. And for us, we work with each government to help them manage their giraffe within the policies and legislation they have. And that's the most important to us.
1: And what's it like within the world of giraffe conservation? So another challenge I've seen in Southeast Asia with elephants, and that's the only one I can speak to personally in, in kind of more, more uh, detail, from a personal experience, is that there's unfortunately, rather than a lot of collaboration <laughs> across elephant organizations and conservation efforts, there's instead a lot of competition. And I think part of that is from the limited resources that are available, there's a lot of sort of sh- kind of shaming each other, shaming maybe too strong a word, but just sort of knocking each other's practices or ideas and and, and needing to sort of always be like the strongest the thought leader in the elephant space in order to try to track that funding. And there's just, there's just not, frankly, a lot of collaboration. Uh, there is a lot more walls up conservation and conservation in the elephant space in Southeast Asia. I'm wondering if, and it's frustrating because it's sort of like, it seems so obvious that if we work together, we can do more for this species than, than being divided. I'm wondering what that's like in the draft space in Africa. Cause, cause I don't know any of that firsthand. If you see some of the same dynamic and is is the launch of your giraffe resource center part of challenging that and trying to push for more collaboration and transparency and partnership across organizations and how, 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 how how big of a problem is it?
2: Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we could all work together for a common goal and it would be so much more effective? Yeah, unfortunately, also like in the elephant world, personalities often get into the way and it seems that some people like to forget what we are actually aiming for and fighting for and uh, working together would be much easier. So yeah, you have to choose your partners very carefully. We are working with a lot of government, NGOs, international. We, We have big projects with the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. We San Diego Zoo Global. Some of the biggest conservation players in the world, African Parks Network. We work with a lot across Africa. But, yeah, you have to choose your partners carefully and not everyone is as collaborative as you wish they would be.
0: I I think it was funny. Someone said the other day to us said, the giraffe world is really fascinating. She said, I've worked in the banking world. I've worked in Frankfurt. Then I've gone on to coach football, American football teams. I have never seen the amount of antagonism, the amount of conflict in the giraffe world that she saw in any of her jobs previously. So maybe that helps you sort of answer it a little bit.
2: (laughs) But at the same time, as we said, you you choose your partners carefully and we work with amazing other organisations and together we can really make a difference.
0: And we work across the continent and most other people who like to term themselves giraffe conservationists, they overseas, they don't have a base on the ground. So we like to work with local players, we support local players, technically, financially, and all of these really have made a difference over the years and during these COVID times, it's been fascinating because we've been able to get on and do predominant amount of our work over the last year and and not many organisations can show that. We've got teams in many countries and and we continue to live and, and work across Africa on the ground and that's really critical. When you think about the Giraffe Resource Center, something, an idea that came out many years ago when I looked at the Rhino Resource Center, which is one of the most phenomenal online sort of websites, which has more than, I think, more than 25,000 resources or references about different types of rhino, everything from the arts through to their ecology. And I realized that when I was trying to do my PhD, it was quite challenging to get papers sitting in Namibia, I couldn't easily just jump online and find them. Or if I had to, I had to pay 10, 20, 30 bucks per paper. And that's a lot of money when you're a young student. So what we wanted to do was really to be able to compile all of these into our own library and people can access them so that they don't have to spend this money. They've got a one-stop shop about all things giraffe. And this is not about us. This is about bringing everyone who loves giraffe whether it be in the wild or the zoos or to come together and be able to have the same access that we have been luckily pulled together over the years.
1: And then another kind of big pillar that is becoming sort of, a, and I see it in the work you're doing and it, and I see with more of the progressive conservation you know, programs out there is becoming a big pillar for them as well, is how do mobilize and empower and educate local communities um, to do the conservation work, to, to sort of not, you know, forever be relying on sort of international folks coming in, finding funding and, 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 and saving these species, but the, how to empower local communities to, to do this, to do, to, to kind of carry the torch. We, we talked about it a lot with National Park Rescue founder Mark Hiley in one of our episodes last year. And I see that's a big uh, you have a education program that that you have as well what what has that been like and and what are your thoughts on like how how important that that is to the long term conservation of giraffe?
2: I mean fact is that giraffe can only be saved in Africa by African people who share their space with giraffe so it's great to, to for outsiders to come in and we can be we can start something, but in the end if if this is not Carried by local people in Africa, our work is not worth very much. So what we try to do, I mean, as we said, we we work in sixteen different African countries, and the approach is very different everywhere. But we are based here in in Namibia, so obviously we do more we tend to do a bit more work here. And a few years ago, we we went to our kids' school and we gave a talk about giraffe on World Giraffe Day. I should mention that, 21st of June, longest day of the year for you guys, longest night for us is World Giraffe Day. And so we gave a talk about giraffe on World Giraffe Day and we just asked, said, how many of you have seen a giraffe? And only about 50% of the kids raised their hand. And uh, we were shocked because that's in, in Vintok, we are here in the capital, but there's giraffe literally 20 kilometers out of town. So there is no excuse for, for any of these kids never to have seen a giraffe. So that really made us think. And we, as we know, you you can only really protect and love what you... It's a very abstract thought to, to protect a giraffe and your environment if you don't really know what you're protecting. And so we developed a program where we take primary school kids. They're normally about between 11 and, and 12 years old. And we have a young Namibian team, three educators who take these kids for a school day, into the field. It's a national park just about 20 kilometers out of town where they go on a nature walk and they teach them about different aspects that they're actually covering in their school curriculum as well in in that grade. And they talk about their environment and just show them the beauty of their country. and, And giraffe, if they encounter them or other wildlife, they track they look at tracks. They talk about saving water, which here in Namibia, in a very arid country, obviously is a big issue. They talk about litter, but the main aim is really to to connect these kids with nature and and show them how how beautiful their country is. And uh, in a normal non-COVID year, we take about two and a half thousand kids into the field for a day per year, which really changes the lives of some of these kids because they have no. It before, and that is really we want to, to to create a passion and our team, as I said, three young Namibian educators who are really passionate about their environment, who really manage to share this passion with these children, and uh, yeah, so that is one of the environmental uh, and community engagement programs we run. But in in most countries where we work, we we have some form and level of community engagement just to to raise awareness to yeah make people proud of what they have i mean for for a lot of people giraffe is part of their national heritage to to yeah really understand why they should protect giraffe and what is so special about them
0: i think to add to steph what's what's fascinating in a lot of these countries community conservation is the basis for long-term preservation of many of the species in their habitat so we as GCF, we don't have the biggest team and we don't want the biggest team, but we partner with amazing groups. In northern Kenya, the San Diego Zoo Global team have a, set up a program called Twigga Walinsi, and that means the giraffe guards. And they work across a large community landscape. And what we've seen the last couple of years is essentially from a high level of poaching of giraffe and other animals, it's almost come down to none. So it's critical to have feet on the ground there the program employs 15 local community members and, and this is the type of program that we have repeated and, and supporting across the continent through local partners and that's what it's about. It's about coming together, finding solutions, realising you don't have to do it yourself but there's a lot of people out there who have the skills and the capacity and they might just need a little bit of support, a little bit of information and together we can make so much more of a difference. And and that's why we find it's a basis of definitely what we want to do. We call it our Twigawetu program, which means our giraffe. And community conservation will always be at the core of saving giraffe long-term in Africa.
1: Well, well said. I'm glad there are folks like you out there. I think it, it, it gives gives hope that we can save these, this, these species and these ecosystems and, and do it the right way. So kudos to, to all the work you've done and, and all the work you still have left to do. I, I get this. I'm just going to ask this uh, silly question because I get it all the time from people living in LA, me as a kind of a conservation conservationist and supporter. And so I imagine I get a lot of wildlife questions and they ask me all the time. Are you aware of the, the Malibu giraffe?
0: Yeah. Sure. And so,
1: yeah, I get a question all the time of like, is that okay? Is, is that, like is that that giraffe is is totally fine right and it's like totally normal and I people want me to say yeah it's okay to go and enjoy the Malibu giraffe and not feel like you're supporting anything exploitative but I don't really know the answer and so I figured who better to answer it than you both so what are your thoughts on and what what should we know about the Malibu giraffe so
0: I've met the Malibu giraffe, I've been there and, and, and hosted an, or went to an event that was hosted by Malibu Wines. For us, we don't work with captive animals and we don't have the skills or the knowledge, but the reality is there is giraffe that are in these captive facilities, whether it be a small area or a larger area. What we want to make sure is that the welfare of those animals is the best possible. So we've actually worked a lot with zoos to come and work with us in the field to figure out what's the best hoof care. So we've you know, done surveys, we've took x-rays of wild hooves to figure out what is the best type of farrow work for giraffe hooves in the USA. So the Malibu giraffe is just a, one example. I think from what i saw it's well cared for jake who's uh the actual dude who um, looks after the giraffe there mostly he is extremely passionate about it and that's half the battle these giraffes are really education educators they are the cousins that are hopefully will help us to be able to be ambassadors for want of a better word for giraffe in the wild so I don't say that we should be taking any more giraffe out of the wild and putting them into zoos, but those that are in captive facilities, we should be treating in the best way possible, managing them appropriately. And what's the super cool thing, we can convince the likes of Malibu to help raise funding to support us to do our conservation in the work, so it has a real meaning.
1: So, it's okay. so it is okay to go and, and support the, the Malibu giraffe?
0: Go and support it, but maybe throw a few bob our way. That's always good.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I think I think that's important, right? Just don't don't lose sight of uh, the the bigger larger need of of protecting these species in the wild and maintaining them in the wild.
2: You you can only really love what you, and the average person from LA is probably not going to come to Africa and see a giraffe in the wild. So there's so many passionate giraffe people out there who really, really love giraffe and want to make a difference. And most of them have only ever seen giraffe in the zoo and really feel a connection to them. So that is, an, as Julian said, they're an ambassador and a really important educator for people to to create passion.
1: All right. Well, we just have a final section that we'll, we'll do quickly. Just kind of a little rapid fire, some couple of fun questions. And just say the first thing that comes to your mind. So what is a, a book you 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 love in the world of conservation or climate that you think everyone should read?
2: I've just read the new David Attenborough book, which is very depressing, but also gives you a little bit
1: of hope. What's the title of that book called? I can't
0: remember. I, really I bought it the like... other day. <laughs> <laughs> I've read it as well. It's awesome. Yeah, but...
2: It's the what is it's it? the most recent one. The most recent one. I really don't know what it's called right now. But it's not something
0: yeah. about planet. It's not, yeah. it's not
2: planet Earth, but
0: I never, we never remember the titles uh, of these Rambus. books.
2: It <laughs> was the latest, David Edinburgh. Was a read
0: <laughs> apart from the BBC Natural World one on giraffe. Gentle Giants, which was about the Giraffe Conservation Foundation work, I definitely love uh, the Planet Earth series. I think that puts wildlife habitat and the whole human context into what's been going on for the last couple of hundred years and and how we need to better save it.
2: Um, I agree. Here in Namibia, it's just a, a lot of hype because I believe Will Smith arrived today to film a new episode of The Strange Rock Called Earth. I think that's another one to definitely make science and conservation quite quite easily digestible.
0: I'm surprised you didn't say the Zac Efron one because you thought he was oh, cute. Oh, that's also, Yeah, <laughs> we really enjoyed
2: that. But, yeah, also I can't remember the name. <laughs> um, <I can't>
0: remember. <laughs> that
2: was actually really inspiring. We loved watching that, especially with the kids, the Zac Efron series on Netflix where he travels and, the different conservation projects and countries. Very, yeah, also very, very, very interesting.
1: All right. I did not know the Fresh Prince has arrived. In, in, yes. oh, yeah, a yeah. lot of social media. Yeah, there's no
0: Carlton here. We had a look. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so the next question is is sort of, <laughs> the next question we usually ask people is what is your, your favorite uh, wildlife species? So yeah, I was going to say like uh, non-giraffe species for you both. No, definitely
0: my favourite animal in the world is a wombat. Being an Australian, these animals are super cool, hardy, they survive anything and they're the cutest little fuzzy animals.
2: Yeah, I, being out there, I really, really love seeing leopard. I think that's really amazing and it's a quite a rare sighting. We recently were quite lucky to to spot a few in Botswana and Yeah, that's something that I find very special.
1: And then lastly, what is one behavior change that anybody could make that's accessible to to help fight climate change, save this planet? What's one thing that you wish more people would do from just an individual behavior standpoint?
0: I think the simplest and easiest is reduce your plastic. Go to the shop with your own bag. Don't accept plastic. Don't put your fruit in a plastic bag. Plastic comes from oil. Oil obviously has a massive impact on in our environment with development and the impacts it has on wildlife and habitat. So for me, that's a quick, simple one we can all do. Use less plastic.
1: Absolutely. That was actually, this is, that's actually the subject of our Animalia newsletter going out tomorrow is sadly, plastic has seen a over 10% surge during the pandemic. Mm.
2: Okay. No, that's terrible. That just doesn't make sense, does
1: it? You would
0: think people would use less, but yeah, maybe like
1: takeaway food and... well, I think it's because people more take out instead of going to restaurants, disposable gloves and masks happening. You think of like Starbucks, for instance, you can't bring in a thermos and have it filled anymore.
0: No. Yeah.
1: So well in the US didn't didn't has not done a great job if you, in case you weren't paying attention with the COVID. Situation. Uh, we, we, we didn't have ex- probably the best leadership in place for a pandemic in 2020. And as a result, it has uh, it has unraveled more than it probably should have. <laughs> yeah.
0: Definitely.
1: Well, great. Really appreciate you both uh, coming on. One
2: more thing what people should do. Yeah. Really educate yourself. Don't believe every headline and thing you, you read on social media. Be critical about what you read and, and really question some of, some of the things that are published on social media or even in, in newspapers. There's often several sides to every story and we really see that, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to get good, reliable information these days.
1: Yeah, that problem is not getting easier with uh, the amount of misinformation. No,
2: and it's, it's easy to, to click something to like something on social media and think you make a difference. There's so many people doing petitions about something. It's not going to change anything. Just because you click like on a social media post or you sign a petition, it's not going to change the world.
1: Yeah, no, the, the performance, we call, I call it kind of performance activism. Where people are not actually uh, getting involved or donating or necessarily even sometimes like going out of the way to kind of share it directly they're just they're just putting up a post that says they are on like i support giraffe or something right and i leave it at that like oh I've, i'm i'm I've, I've checked the box <laughs> and that post has a shelf life of of increasingly smaller smaller shelf shelf life as all social media does yeah, it's it's frustrating because it it, it it gives the illusion for people that they are part like they're part of the solution, they're they're an activist because they made a social media post.
2: Yeah. True.
0: True, true.
1: Sometimes they don't even tag organizations. Like you know what I mean, like they'll they'll post about giraffe but they won't tag G C F or something. Like you know what I mean, like they're not even really even doing the minimal viable work to at least Get some folks to, let's say, your social media handle or something like that. We see that
0: every day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Don't get us.